I think this is a pile of shit while John Sinclair rots in prison. Hi, my name is Pat Thomas. I'm the author of Listen Whitey, as well as the author of Did It, Jerry Rubin, an American Revolutionary. And you're listening to Radio 8 Ball with Andres Jones. Welcome to the Radio 8 Ball. Give us a shake. We're here in your ear. Tempting fate wherever you are. Questions put to song. Randomly with the help of a friend, synchronicity, and now it's time for the radio eight-ball show. Welcome to the Radio 8 Ball Show. I'm your host, Andras Jones, and this is the show where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting those randomly chosen songs as the answers to the questions like picking musical tarot cards. This is Radio 8 Ball Season 3, The Appening. 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 Where we are engaging the pop oracle using the Radio 8 Ball app which is filled with every song recorded in the history of Radio 8 Ball, as well as a couple of hundred of my own. I hope by now you've downloaded the Radio 8 Ball app if you're an iPhone user. It's free, and it allows you to play host and conduct your own musical divinations just as we do on the show. The app also plays the latest podcast and selects the randomly chosen Pop Oracle Song of the Day. On last week's episode of Radio 8 Ball, Josh Troy asked... Is managing your memories the secret to happiness? And received as his randomly chosen answer from the Pop Oracle, Right Away, recorded on Radio 8 Ball at Starburns Industries on June 18th, 2018, by Miranda Zeiger. There's a tranquil sky so heavenly it hurts and I'm stuck here in between. The waking life of everyday gray and an unrelenting dream So I'll ride away I'll ride away This has been a brutal week. There's a lot to say about it. And, as people who follow synchronicity, I think we can do more than simply voice our condemnation or concern. Although I'm sure we all have plenty of both. I'd written several paragraphs lambasting and broadsiding for this intro before I realized that's not why you listen to the Radio 8 Ball show. If you want that, follow me on Facebook, where I am still as weaponized as ever. But the skill we are sharpening with this game of musical divination is one of recognizing context and using our attention and our intention to transform reality, literally to take a sad song and make it better. This awareness, this skill, can be a useful tool during good times. It's fun. Synchronicity is sexy and enlightening. 
And it can be a life-saving talent when you're dancing between the rubber bullets and the false narratives deployed against us. So, let's see what kind of synchronicity we caught in the net this week, shall we? I tried to get Miranda Zeiger to join the session to discuss her song and the divination it was a part of, but she was unavailable, unfortunately, so I started thinking about writers I knew who might want to be her alternate. Now, I know a lot of different writers, but I followed the synchronicity here, and Pat Thomas and I had recently shared our affinity for some less-than-universally-loved Pete Townsend solo albums in a social media thread, which inspired me to send him my record, All You Get, which is in some ways inspired by Townsend's solo work, and Pat had a nice word or two to say about it. I was aware he was some kind of a rock writer, but mostly I just thought he was an interesting guy, maybe to start a conversation with. Well, I didn't know the half of it. It turns out Pat knew Miranda's band, Willow Willow, from when they both lived in the Bay Area, so he was more than able to offer some context on the song. More than that, Pat is the author of books on Jerry Rubin and the Black Panthers, books on each of them. And when I saw that in my research, it caught my eye because it meant Pat was going to be steeped in the lore of Jerry Rubin's fellow yippie, Abby Hoffman. And the synchronistic connection between Pete Townsend and Abby Hoffman has always fascinated me. And mostly no one else. But if that fascinates you, you're really going to enjoy this episode. That's what fascinated me in my role as the booker of the show in my intention, you know, but now as the editor and disseminator of the sync, as the one giving it attention, what fascinates me is that we had this conversation on the afternoon of May 30th when the uprisings broke out all over the nation in response to the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. Had we known that was going on, I would have asked Pat a lot more about the Panthers and talked a lot less about Woodstock and LSD. In fact, I even asked Pat to hop on the line the following day just so I could ask him at least one question about current events and the Black Panthers, which he graciously agreed to do. Overall, as I've been editing this episode, I noticed something was slightly off. You can feel it, like the sound of gunfire in the background of the president's speech or the smell of smoke from a fire in the distance when you're just drifting off to sleep. Something's just a little bit distracted and overeager at least on my part. If this is a hurdle to your enjoyment of the episode, do as I do and focus on Pat. And just imagine my voice is a weather vane on the cusp of a hurricane. Maybe that'll help. And speaking of help, we need yours. I mean, certainly other people need your help more, but uh, the help we need is so little. If you enjoy this show, please help your friends find it. And one of the best ways to do it is to download the app and do a little musical divination with your friends and then tell them that they can hear more of these and learn more about this by subscribing to the podcast. Uh, of course, the app is free and uh, you'll, you'll be hearing a ton about it, so I don't need to tell you more. Uh, the Patreon campaign, we added one new Patreon subscriber this week, that being Scott Silverman, who I know from the Maypole events that we spoke about with Josh Troy last week. So thank you, Scott. Welcome to the Patreon campaign. As a member, you pay the low, 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 low price of just $1 a month. And for that, you get to hear all the bonus episodes. 
And the bonus episodes are really just the second half of the episodes in which I ask my own questions. And so uh, Scott's going to be able to hear my question this week. If you join the Patreon campaign, you will too. And if you join like this, I will give you a shout out on the show. And as far as ratings and reviews, well, you know, that's the way that you can help people find us by giving us a good rating or writing a good review wherever you get your podcast, particularly at Apple Podcasts, because the algorithm will help more people to find us. And I'd really appreciate that. And if you do write your synchronicity story in your review, I'll read it on the show. And if you haven't already, please remember to subscribe to the Radio 8 Ball show podcast in your podcast providers so that you will receive it every week as they are released and before we get down to digging into some synchronicity with this week's guest let's do as we always do and kick off the musical divination with the pop oracle song of the day from may 30th 2020 the day we had our conversation with pat thomas recorded at starburns industries in burbank california on june 22nd 2018 here is gabriel gordon with autumn Of the doubt, 
space giving freely some things you never wanna talk about She comes back around this way Give her she looks me in the eye Give her she turns around and around again Autumn wants to know why She was autumn the answer to gabriel gordon's question is happiness a choice and here we are back on may 30th 2020 talking to the noted rock writer and graduate of the evergreen state college a new uh sort of facebook friend of mine pat thomas pandemicking in Burbank, California. How are you doing, Pat? Good, good. Um, good to be on the show and uh, looking forward to uh, throwing the volleyball around on a few topics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to explore some synchronicity. But uh, as I ask all of our guests, we're sort of taking the pandemic tour of the synchronistic connections to Radio 8 Ball. Everyone we're talking to is pandemicking in a different place. You're in Burbank. Uh, how are you? How are you taking it? Well, I figure any any morning that I wake up and I'm not in the hospital and I'm not in jail is a good day. Uh, however, uh, despite being physically healthy, it's it's very mentally challenging for all of us. I I have to remind myself, you know, I'm not in London during the Blitz. I'm not landing on the beaches of Normandy, uh, so it's not that bad. But it just it's it's a weird it's a weird time for most of us or all of us. You know, having done this survey of people during this, I've noticed that most people always preface their experience, and maybe it's just the people I'm talking to, by making clear that they're they're okay, they're they're lucky, they're good, they're one of the lucky ones, and then they sort of like sort of short shrift off this like, but it's you know, it's hard, I you know. And, well, and it is. And I just think it's I think it's an interesting having to, since it's everyone. And I think I do that, too. When people ask me how I am, I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm safe. But I think it's an interesting psychological phenomenon that everyone I've spoken to feels a little I think a little bit embarrassed to some degree to talk about how hard it is for them. Whereas if everyone was out and about and you had a friend who was just going through this on their own. And just the way you are, I am, you'd be like, oh, man, you're stuck inside for you can't see anyone 
for months. Right. Oh my God. Right. Oh my God. Call, call me. That's got to be trauma. You know, like your heart would go out to that. Oh person. yeah. <laughs> well, I think I think what it is the reason why I was preface it. You know, growing up in the '70s, you know, you'd see you know Belfast or Beirut on TV. Uh, you know, you read about it in the history books of you know World War II. And so, you know, as, as Americans, uh, you know, most of us are middle class or whatever. You know, most of us have not endured that many hardships, you know. And so I just want to be conscious of the fact that, uh, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, I'm just living on the street. I, you know, I just, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I think it just levels the playing field because it really doesn't matter whether you're uh, you know, rich or poor or old or young that, you know, this is kind of hitting pretty much every American, you know, everyone in the world, everyone in the world. Yeah. For that matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think what it, it speaks to is we're all, I think all of us are aware of a certain amount of privilege we have. Right. And I think particularly with all the events going on this week, the police murders and the protests and mm -hmm. and then just the awareness that this disease is hitting people who are poor and people who are and hitting african-american communities and native american communities harder there's a real strong sense like of course right like, i'm yeah i'm not like i don't live in the community that's getting hit the hardest and so of course i'm lucky and it's really hard to ask anyone to give too much attention to how hard it is on me and I think that's true of every musician and artist I've spoken to in this. Most of us are yeah. somewhat used to being stuck inside, feeling isolated and broke and desperate. So, you know, our lives, we've, we've built our privileged bubbles in that situation. So I think for, for a lot of us, it's a little bit easier. But one of the things that I've been enjoying a lot is you've been doing these little... Uh, fireside <laughs> chat reads of your rock and roll books on Facebook. And it's so odd, the things that we find compelling, like, oh, there's all these rock stars and people putting on shows. And to be honest, I don't know if I want to see Bruce Springsteen debase himself like that. I mean, not, not in a bad way, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I would rather watch you open up a book and read a interview about Bruce Springsteen and feel sort of connected to another human mm. being on a level that is like, oh, this is someone I kind of know. I'm getting to know him better. All the stuff you're talking about, you're reading is really interesting. And then uh, around Towns, Pete Townsend's birthday, you read one of his interviews from what was that? What was that interview that you read? It was from Rolling Stone early 70s? Uh, well, I, re I actually read from a from a I think it was from a mid 70s British thing, if I remember. Oh, correctly. yeah. But I did posted a quote from Rolling Stone, but I read from like a Melody Maker or something, or I can't remember now, but mid seventies British. That's it. Uh, yeah. And I just, it, I just found it totally compelling. And uh, what is it? What do you get? What, what is your experience of doing those reads of like, basically, could you tell the listeners what you're doing and what inspired that and like sort of how that is part of your pandemic ritual? Okay, well, uh, when this thing first hit, you know, two plus months ago, a lot of my friends, uh, Facebook people were, you know, are musicians and they were doing, you know, little, you know, live concerts out of their living room, you know, acoustic guitar, whatever. 
and it was you know it was cool i saw a lot of them um and then somebody started bugging me and said well why don't you do something right and you know i am a musician but i'm a drummer uh so i don't think i was gonna get on playing my drum set uh i have done some singer songwriter stuff but i just you know i just didn't see myself in that thing and then all of a sudden i thought well you know what nobody's doing anything about books no one's doing anything with literature no one's reading you know it's it's always music 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 and you know i'm getting i'm you know uh currently currently getting my master's degree in writing i've, I've published several books through fanographics in seattle so I've, I've reached a point that books to me are as important as records you know i'm, I'm not 16 years old anymore uh you know so i don't need to just be into music so i just felt it was important to read and talk about books uh not just my own books but you know a lot of different people's books uh i've also done some um i read a speech by abby hoffman you know 1960s radical i you know you talked about this pete townsend interview i read part of that i read a letter between neil cassidy and Allen ginsburg uh i read a little poetry in my you know just you know i've done about 15 of these things now and uh People seem to enjoy them because no one else is doing it, right? If there were 20 guys like me all reading out of books, you'd be like, oh my God, and not another one of these assholes. Uh, but I'm the only one. So I get to be the singular, pardon me, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great. I, I, I just, I, I, maybe I just love being read to. I think, <laughs> I think people do. They do. People write to me like, dude, I'm loving listening to you read to me. Yeah. I think music. It's, it's a hard format, a laptop, speakers, and whatever thing you have set up in your home. Sometimes it's cool, but it's also a little bit diminished. Whereas a human voice could be coming through like a tin can and a string, and you're, it's infinitely compelling. Well, so, okay, yeah, so now we're gonna get into one of my pet peeves, which is nobody uses the friggin' telephone anymore, right? And to me, it's all about the human voice. You know, I get an email. There's no nuance, right? Maybe someone's trying to be funny, but I don't find it funny or vice versa, right? Or, you know, I deal a lot with music contracts and, you know, artistic needs, right? You know, sometimes it's like, you know what? Rather than email back and forth for like 30 or 40 minutes, a two minute phone call you know in other words people think they're saving time by emailing no they're wasting time right wasting time so the human voice is now become a thing of the past it's it's right in there with the horseshoe frankly for usability right uh you know same thing with texting yeah you know texting is great like you texted me hey pat uh you know hit me up in 10 minutes great we didn't need to have a call but, you know, I've had people text me, like, you know, book-length messages, complicated SHIT. Like, really? You know? You can swear on this, by the way. It's okay. Okay, good. All right. You don't have well, to. Well, now I'm going to really get nasty. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, you know, so I think, I think when I get on my little, you know, fireside chat and actually read to people, it's like, wow. You know, it's, it's kind of like VH, when VH1 started doing acoustic shows in the height of the grunge movement. It was like, oh, my God, acoustic guitars. How unusual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've come full circle with that. Now, now it's like, now there's 
Yeah, those unplugged shows were were different. You know, they were of the of the time. You know, now sometimes, arguably, and I know, you know, even though you and I both love singer songwriters, and you're a singer songwriter, once in a while you're like, hmm, can I hear one less acoustic guitar now? <laughs> it kind of, kind of goes around. I think that's as you get more mature as a songwriter, you start to realize that yeah, uh, right. the guitar, like even though the guitar can, it's great. It can encompass the whole track in your mind in a, in a, when you're playing by yourself. You can kind of play all the parts, but then you're you right. have to when you start when you play with a bass player, you have to. Oh, I'm going to remove that finger from what I was playing. Oh, and now you have a drummer. I'm going to remove half of what my right hand's doing and then eventually you're just going power chord power chord right shuffle 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 you know and then mixing it low in the mix because every everyone else is doing all that stuff Um, yeah but yeah we uh, but i actually i what i what i find uh the uh, one of the things that inspired me to invite you was that josh's question had to do with memory and curating memory and mm-hmm. you are kind of a you are a curator of memories I am a curator. in your work yeah but i really wanted to focus in on because it was pete townsend that uh that sort of sparked me to like oh let me maybe check out okay a fellow pete a fellow pete townsend fan who really right. also loves the solo work and really get gets into the minutia and i feel like that the little that i've seen you write about it or whatever that you 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 think deeply in a way that I I, rela- I relate to about oh, that cool. music and this format of Radio Eight Ball in a lot of ways I'm I, is inspired by a lot of things but one of them is Lifehouse and the ideas in Lifehouse and particularly in these days when we've all been sort of locked in our experience suits and the outside world for environmental reasons in in Lifehouse that's the story that's why everyone's plugged into their experience suits so that the who can hack into their brains and give them this enlightening experience. I've been really, I've been thinking about Lifehouse again. And so Mm -hmm. there was a convergence of that in my thoughts. And then when I saw that you've written about the yippies and Abby Hoffman and Pete Townsend, Mm -hmm. I mean, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, it made me think, Oh, you might be a perfect person to have a conversation a very like a, a convergence conversation about all of those things which sure. is uh the impact of the confrontation that pete townsend and abby hoffman had at woodstock and since i've been talking a lot and i'm sure you can tell that story as well as i can would you tell mm-hmm. the listeners what i'm referring to Sure. Uh, 1969, the famous Woodstock concert, and the Who are playing, uh, you know, Tommy pretty much from start to finish. Uh, Abby Hoffman, who was known as a yippie, which was basically a anti-Vietnam War activist. He was against the Vietnam War. He was uh, also supported the Black Panther Party, he was a big dope smoker, supported the right to smoke dope, jumped up in the middle of the giant Woodstock concert, in the middle of the Who set, and started talking about how John Sinclair, who was the manager of the MC5, the rock band, was in jail for 15 years, uh, sentenced to 10 or 15 years for for carrying two joints. And so he grabbed the mic and he's starting to rant, and Townsend just turned around and just kicked him as hard as he could or swung his guitar into his back. And Townsend, uh, I'm sorry, 
Abby Hoffman went flying into the audience and just sort of disappeared. Uh, there's no visual of this, but there is audio. It's It's been the Who put it on their box set 25 years ago. It's on the new Woodstock box. And it, it's just become this sort of moment in rock and roll because it's a convergence of the Who, who many of us love. It's a convergence of Abby Hoffman that some of us love and some of us despised. I loved him. And I, I got into a big argument about this last year when it was the 50th anniversary of the Woodstock show. And the argument was, is, you know, and I love town, you know, I love them both because they're both arrogant tricks, right? So Townsend is like, you know, get, get the fuck off my stage. Totally get it, right? At the same time, a bunch of friends of mine were like, you know, there's no room for politics and music. I said, wow, if you're a Dylan fan, if you're a John Lennon fan, if you're a Curtis Mayfield fan, if you're a Sly Stone fan. If you're a Bob you, Marley fan, if you're a yeah, Nirvana yeah, fan, if you're, a, if you're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you're a, human a Woody being, Guthrie fan, Woody Guthrie fan, right? Exactly. So I find it. I'm always bemused by these knucklehead rock fans who say, "Ah, oh, there's no room for politics and music." Most of the music we love has some social political element. That's what makes it worth listening to, for Christ's sake, you know. Um, and so I think it's great. To me, it's just it's one of those great iconic moments of the '60s. Uh, and, and whether someone's right or wrong, I don't really give a shit. I mean, it's, it's you know, I mean, obviously I hate what happened at Altamont, but it's a key part of the 60s. Um, you know, Charlie Manson, you know, is discussing, well, is it key, you know, these are these are iconic moments for anyone who studies the counterculture of the 60s. And the fact that we're here we are on a radio in 2020 still talking about it. Uh, you know, I love that. So, you know, good on Townsend, good on Miami. You know? Yeah. And just to, to provide a little bit more context, just from my standpoint, okay. there's I think the, another important piece of this is that the who got dosed at Woodstock. So they were so Townsend right. was on acid at Woodstock playing Tommy when Abby Hoffman jumped up on stage and this happened, which if you've ever to the extent that you are a believer that those ecstatic states brought on by those medicines, those ritualistic psychedelic medicines that there's a, from a synchronicity standpoint, there's a convergence that was happening for Townsend that like, if you've ever had the psychedelic psychedelic experience, you know that the things that happen to you get encoded into you there in ways you may not know. And I'm with you on feeling like that's just an amazing convergence. And Ultimately, if I was either one of them, I would probably, if it was me, and that's why I'm probably different from them, I would walk away from the encounter feeling a little bit embarrassed. Like, I, if I was Townsend, I would have felt embarrassed to, to like, come to America and kick an activist off the stage. That's kind of shitty. And then if I was Abby Hoffman, I'd be like, oh, shit, I should, why did I interrupt the fucking who? Like, uh, well, that's an, but, well, but I want to say one more thing, just really quickly. I interviewed Abby Hoffman for my high school paper. In 1984, oh, at a protest in Boston, he was in line for the bathroom, and I let him cut in front of me so that I could interview him in this line to get to the porta potty. And this is what I asked him about. I did, I was like, "Hey, is it true? Because this is before all that stuff had come out. This is like '84 is before the Who box set, and all that. I was like, is, right, it, sure. is it true that Pete Townsend kicked you off the stage at Woodstock?' And he's like, "Nah, if he had tried that, I would have kicked his ass." 
So well, that, he's a liar. <laughs> I mean, I love him. Well, 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 yeah, yeah. Well, well, what I was about to say is that through the years, both men have waffled on this, okay? There was time where Abby said that. It didn't really happen. Of course, he couldn't get away with that later. But there were times where he felt embarrassed. There were times that he felt defiant. I've seen interviews. You know, Townsend is nothing if not mercurial. And Townsend will contradict himself within one sentence, right? So I've read interviews where Townsend said, I'm glad I did that, you know, get off my fucking stage, I'm a musician. And I've heard him go, you know, Abby had a point, you know, that was a, a, an, um, an important, you know what I mean? So these guys have both waffled. Um, but what's interesting is the amount of horseshit that follows this. I've actually seen stupid comments on Facebook that, Someone claimed that Abby got a job at Warner Pictures Volt in the 70s and went in and found the exact, you know, reel of film that had him getting kicked off the stage. He had it destroyed. Uh, total bullshit. Abby never worked in the, in the, the library of Warner Pictures, right? I mean, he wasn't in disguise living in Burbank. Uh, I, you know, I know where that Volt is. No, no. I mean, seriously, the, the amount of... I mean, I love a good conspiracy theory, but, you know, having done a whole book on Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, the Yippies, having interviewed a hundred of their close friends, I can tell you as a fact, Abby did not get a job for two weeks at Warner Pictures so he could find that. Well, that's not the, that's not the Abby Hoffman conspiracy theory that I am yeah. constantly played with. Uh, I guess uh, I'll ask you, do, having done all that work, do you think he killed himself? I think, okay, I'm glad you brought this up. I think he killed himself. If, if, the, if the feds wanted to off Abby Hoffman, it would have happened in 68, 69, 70, 71, 72. Okay? There's no reason on earth uh, for someone to do Abby Hoffman in in 1981. I just, Abby was, had been a manic depressive for many, 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 many years. Uh, had a lot of highs and lows, was on a lot of different medications uh, in the last few years of his life. And so, again, having interviewed nearly 100 people who knew Abby, uh, you know, was everybody shocked? Sure. Did, did anyone think he was ever going to commit suicide? No. But but they saw the, the episodes with Abby. He just, you know, he was, you know. You know, I don't know what else to say. He was he was mentally ill. And I don't and I don't say that lightly. My father was his therapist in college mm. at Brandeis. And so oh, wow. his books were, were a huge, really big inspiration on me when I was in high school. So I just, I felt a really, really strong connection to this guy. But I, I am also curious, does a life like that drive you mad? Like Phil Oaks has a tendency to be nuts, but if you get treated the way Phil Oaks was treated, does that make you nuttier? Like if you have to go on the run like Abby Hoffman, if you have to live like an outlaw... Does that exacerbate it? I think it has to. Well, yeah. You've brought up something that I've discussed a lot in various interviews and things. Not, none of us, you know, certainly not you or I, for, okay, was, you know, leading the revolution in Chicago in 1968. Right? Yeah. Okay. And basically, a number of things happened. First of all, People like Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were so recognizable over like a three or four year period that they might be just cruising through Greenwich Village, let's say 1971, and some redneck just comes up and punches them in the face, right? Because they anti, you know, they think those guys are anti-American. Second of all, you know, the Chicago 8 trial, 
you know, the government was trying to put these guys away forever. And so it's stressful to be a, a quote unquote anti-American revolutionary. Even it's though a, in my mind, those it's stressful guys are now. Great. It's still stressful. stressful. Yeah, it's still stressful. Exactly. Try okay. try criticizing anything that Joe Biden says without being called a Trump supporter. Right, right. Exactly. So, you know, it the 60s took a toll on these guys, okay? And for Abby in particular, you know, the problem with the 1980s for Abby, and I used to follow him around a little bit on college campuses, you know, the war was long over, uh, you know, basic civil rights had been won. There was obviously no draft. And so college kids in the 1980s were apathetic. And no surprise, there wasn't, other than Reagan or whatever, there wasn't too much to be pissed off about. And so Abby was depressed. You know, he had, you know, I kind of, the way I describe Abby Hoffman or, or even Ruben, it's like having a major label record deal, selling tons of records, getting dropped by your label, and now you're playing casinos rather than football stadiums. Okay. You're describing the film One Trick Pony, kind of. Right. So, you know, so that's what happened to Abby. I mean, he found a few cool things. He, he protested against the CIA recruiting on college campuses and, and won a lawsuit about that. But He had the know, whole Grey Panthers thing going. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, so... I thought so, he was yeah. cool. I was one of those nerdy kids who thought he was cool. Right. You know. right. So anyway, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's stressful. I mean, most of the... You know, I also did a book about the Black Panthers... Most of the Black Panthers are, you know, sort of like, they're almost like grizzled Vietnam War veterans because, you know, they got shot at on the streets of L.A. Uh, or the streets of Oakland. And these guys have been through a lot. So I think it's easy, even, even you know, and you and I are obviously, uh, you know, the next generation. But, you know, it's amazing to me how many, let's say, 65 or 70-year-olds or whatever I meet who are criticizing you know, Jerry Rubin, because he put on a, uh, a suit and a tie. And it's like, you know what? He got tired of being a revolutionary. Uh, the other thing is, is that he was still a liberal Democrat, like his buddy Tom Haight, right? People think because he put on a suit and tie and worked at Wall Street, oh, he must have been a Reaganite. He must have been a neo-Nazi. No, believe it or not, much like many people's generation, he wanted to make a little money. He wanted to have a wife and kids, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's not a crime to eventually give up the revolution. No, no, no. They became, I mean, yeah. if you hadn't had the Bill Clinton, Al Gore, new Democrat thing, guys like Hayden and Rubin were the natural uh, yes. uh, yeah. inheritors of the Democratic Party. And if they That's had, it. then we wouldn't be fighting the battles we have now. We were fighting yeah. now. It was that rightward move. I mean, yeah, of course, you're gonna the revolutionaries are gonna grow up, and then they're going to end up in the halls of power and be hypocritical and do deals. But they're still gonna have that connection yeah. to the revolution, some degree, right? That's what yeah. you hope. Instead yeah. of coming out of Wall Street and think tanks and all that, yeah. Is yeah. where the Democratic Party went. So, I, before we get off of Abby Hoffman and Pete Townsend, I want to throw this out to you. Yeah, there's something about the idea that Townsend is on stage at Woodstock, blazing mm -hmm. on acid, has mm -hmm. this huge countercultural sort of political rock and roll moment that is ha raises all these interesting questions that obviously they've both been working through, they both work through later in life, 
And at oh. the meantime, he's writing Lifehouse. And something to me about that, exp- like when I think of Lifehouse, there's, as a writer, it's not like he's writing about that experience, but I can feel in that experience, some sort of in the feeling tone that I get around it, something about like a kernel of something that is going to inform this idea of music and politics and transcendence. It feels like that that kind of like an acid trip. Like Lifehouse feels like an acid trip where the band kicks a an activist off the stage, but instead of kicking him off the stage, they bring him onto the stage and he becomes a part of the band. It's almost like Lifehouse is like Townsend's way of redoing that moment and I don't know, that's again that's what and making his band the activist band that's leading the revolution instead of the reactionary band that's kicking the activist off the stage. And I'm just curious. I wanted to bounce this off your head. What do you? Am I totally wrong on this, or what do you think about that? Well, you know, the thing is, with "Won't Get Fooled Again," it's it's a great anthem, and again, it's it's a little ambiguous because you know, with interviews with Townsend, he's he's kind of thinking that the movement had some false leaders. At the same time, you know, he's he's definitely a liberal. You know, so you know, it's it it can be. You know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, right? So you think he might be talking about, like, Abby Hoffman as the new boss? Like, or, like, maybe, uh, the like, the Jerry Rubin in the suit or the Tom Hayden in Congress? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I've, I've never, it's funny. I've never thought about Lifehouse being directly connected to the Woodstock incident. You're the first person to mention it, so I give you an A-plus for um, ingenuity. Um <laughs> I think it's, in my personal opinion, it's a little more ambiguous than that. Um, you know, especially with Townsend, you know, because this is a guy who talks out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, he, he, uh, I mean, one thing we know is that he, he became sort of anti-drug for a while because of Mayor Baba was not into drugs. Which would have been uh, after, know, which have been right after this incident. Right, right. But then we know much later in life, he becomes a heroin addict and a coke Actually, you know, I was, this is one of, so I, I've met, I met Pete Townsend once mm-hmm. and, uh, my friend was working on the, on Tommy, the musical. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I got to be in the recording session when they recorded it in New York city. And, uh, George Martin was producing it and Townsend didn't have any, much to do. He's just sort of right. hanging out. And my friend sure. was like, don't embarrass me. Don't talk to him. I was like, okay, unless he talks to me, I'm not going to say anything. And at one point, everyone else is gone. It's just me and my friend and Townsend in the room. And he's like, so are you going to introduce me to your friend? And basically, he adopted me for the day. And was oh, like, I love it. It was an amazing, like you talk about Mercurial. Like it's my, it was like the fear of meeting Townsend is that you're going to meet him on a day when he just says, treats you like you're like, like dirt. But mm-hmm. he brought me in and it was so amazing and there was these I was hanging out in the studio and there's George Martin these two blonde girls we were drinking champagne and it was all great and then I went and read his book and that was the day he relapsed Mm, interesting (laughs) and so anyways the point is I just like you're talking about his his use that uh, that was one of those things where I was reading I felt like when I'm reading it I'm thinking this is this it, it ruined it I didn't ruin it because it was so good an experience. You can't ruin it. It's a bulletproof experience. But I felt like I had to write him an apology. 
Well, like I felt like how I must have facilitated that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Don't give yourself too much credit. <laughs> you don't know, man. After this episode, you have some bad habits. They might come back. But but when I think of let's go back to Lifehouse. I think of Lifehouse. I think about the grid, which is a prototype for the internet. And I think about, um, you know, there's some environmental things going on. Uh, I think about the idea that you know there's a note within us all, and and that you know they're gonna they're gonna I don't know take your birth date or something and run it through a computer and then you'll have your note. Um, so I, I think the and and all of this is sort of social political. Um, you know, but I, I, I haven't thought as much about the politics side. And again, you know, it would be interesting to go through as many towns and interviews as you could find specifically if I won't get fooled again and then kind of cut and paste and see, you know, for again, from memory, I remember him saying, you know, I was both for and against this radical activism, you know, because I, I you know, and again, I'm paraphrasing what I think he said. But, you know, I, I saw the need for a change, but I also thought that some of the radicals were full of shit. Um, just like he's waffled on Hoffman himself, where he said, yeah, stay the fuck off my stage. Or, yeah, you know, it's it's important to have a, 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 a you know, so, you know, Townsend is nothing if not contradictory to his own thing, you know. Um, but I'm fascinated by lifeless overall, because really what we get into First of all, it's interesting that probably the who's, you know, we could argue, you know, is who's next to the greatest album. I, I would probably say yes, yeah. with Quadrophenia right next to it. So here it is, their greatest album is actually distilled from arguably what could have been their greatest double album. And it removes what I consider to be the, the I don't know, the defining song of... Pure and easy? Yeah, pure and easy. Like, when, to me, when you're talking about Won't Get Fooled Again, to me, Won't Get Fooled Again is only the record, the, the song that we think about that's associated with that because Pure and Easy was not on Who's Next. Because to right. because Pure and Easy is the utopian vision. Won't Get right. Fooled Again is behind... Like, they, 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 like they, took all the, they took all the utopian stuff out of it. And that's why I think it's probably a great 70s record because it's, it's hard yeah. and cynical and it doesn't have the fruity, hippie, dippy shit, but that's the stuff I love. Mary and Pure and Easy and Time is Passing and all, too much of anything. All the all the spiritual stuff got sort of yanked out of it. Right, right. Well, you know, and, and you know, there were a lot of other struggles, which is no one else in The Who understood what Lifehouse was all about. Townsend talks about actually feeling suicidal at one point because he was so frustrated that he, he couldn't convince the other three guys what the hell he was on about. Um, no, it's, 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 it's genius. And then of course, you know, Townsend, of course, never likes, never stops fiddling. I mean, pieces of psycho derelict are connected to life. House. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, He's remade you know, it many times. It's like, he knows. Right. You know, then, then when he put out the Lifehouse Chronicles, demo, Oh. Chronicles, but then he stuck in some things I'm not entirely sure he had written in. Like he he threw in bits of Who Are You? Oh yeah, Sister Disco, Sister Disco is in yeah. there. Yeah, which I think is an afterthought, but you know. I uh, because I feel like he's continued to write. I mean, he's sort of George Lucas did. Right. right he's continuing exactly. to to work around the edges. Okay, so you know what? Now I have I've totally satisfied my 
my well i haven't totally satisfied satisfied myself with temporarily but i have asked much attention you know if you're if you're not already a Pete Townsend fan or interested in the politics of the 1960s, you may have got a little bit of an education and you may have been wondering, I thought we were going to do synchronicity on this show. So let's get down to the format. So the reason you're here, I mean, the reason you're here is to talk about that, but the, the format dictates that the next part is to discuss the reading from the last episode where Josh Troy asked the question... He asked, is managing your memories the secret of happiness? But he actually wrote, is managing your memories the secret happiness? And he got as his answer the song Right Away from Miranda Zeiger, who was originally in the band Willow Willow. And so we talked on the last episode about how that answered the question. And if Miranda were here, she would be telling us. But I understand you have some awareness of Miranda or of Willow Willow from your time in San Francisco. So maybe... You have a, you're the perfect person to give your interpretation here. So what do you think about how right away relates to the question, is managing your memories the secret of happiness? Well, I assume that's a recent song for her, right? Somewhat recent? Yeah, in the last uh, year or two. I think she went through this thing where she was trying to write a song every day for like 70 days, like some long, really long time, long period, and yeah. this was one of those okay. songs. Okay, well, all right, well, okay. So when I first heard Willow Willow, those women were like right out of high school right they were childhood friends and they were sort of like you know the same way that there's a synchronicity when you've got like you know there's the chapin sisters or you know the bgs or the cow right so even though they're not bloodline sisters they they had that okay and they also just had this you know very you know they were incredibly young you know this naivete and so what blew me away about the right away song is here it is like you know i don't know 15 years later and she you know is probably i don't know mid-30s by now roughly ballpark she still has this naivete right this innocence um tender and captivating right and so you know I'm just, I love the fact that she doesn't sound weathered and torn. She doesn't sound jaded. I mean, you know, she, she may, she may be cynical on the inside. I don't know. Cause I haven't spoken to her in 15 years, but well, she didn't want to do this episode. <laughs> yeah. Musically. It's, it's, it's like a, it's like she's frozen in time, but I mean that in the best possible way. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but this is the answer I'm giving you. No, no, no. That's how that's how it's how it's striking you. I, I mean, it's it's really like, it's almost like, and again, I don't say this uh, condescendingly. It's almost like the music of a of a college sophomore, right? You know, it's my second year. You know, and again, I I mean that in the best possible way. It's it's that charm. You know, and I and I hope I hope to God she never loses it. Can you think of a couple of other artists who you feel like? Also, I, as you're talking about this, there are people coming to mind. But do you think of, are there other artists who people might know who may not be familiar with Miranda who you'd say also have that quality of maintaining that super oh, innocent? Sure. One, one would be like Victoria Williams. You know, Victoria, whether you like her or not, you know, because she has this, a purity. this pure. Yeah. I mean, Victoria sounds the same at 60 as she sounded at 25. Right. Ballpark, you know. Um, 
you know, so she has a little, you know, again, and I, you know, don't attack me like this little girl, innocent charm. That's her, that's her thing. Well, wouldn't you say that like Jonathan Richman maybe is another example? Yeah. Of, oh, like, you know what? Has, thank you. Good one. Yeah. And good one, good it's one. like, there's this adorable quality to people who maintain a childlike innocence as an artist. And you have to figure that some of that is, you know, I don't want to say an act, but it's maybe it's in the art that they actually, I think maybe for myself, even as a writer, I feel like there's a way that I allow myself to be the, the sort of gawky, angry kid of my that I was in my mm-hmm. songs that I don't get to be, you know, when I go to the bank or the supermarket or pay my bills or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think maybe that's the case because she is, you know, she if you watch follow her on on out in the social media world, she does she's very she's doing all these interesting artistic projects and she's very sophisticated. But I know exactly what you mean. It's a it's a very Olympia thing. Um, I feel like. Oh, yeah, to- to- totally. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing about K Records was it's sort of naivete and innocence. And, and, you know, I mean, one of the things I love about Calvin, even though he became a more sophisticated songwriter or whatever, you know, Calvin has, uh, you know, some of the same sort of boyish charms, um, you know, yeah. I spent less time with the ride girl stuff. So, uh, you know, I can't speak to that, uh, you know, Lois, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's that's all you know it's all cool stuff and and uh, yeah I'll, I'll i'll hone it in a little bit more just because you are a writer and you do curate memories so this idea is managing your memories the secret of happiness and the song is right away so there's something about like what do you like do you, is there anything there for you about the process of when you write something you create you create a world okay 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 let me say this the problem with traditional way that history is taught is that it's all about like the exact facts, okay? And by facts, I don't mean ex- what, ha- what I, in other words, does it, okay, when we're talking about, let's say, well, we use something I'm familiar with. We're talking about the riots in Chicago 68, right? Does it matter if a certain event happened on a Tuesday or Wednesday? No. Does it matter whether it was the 27th of August or the 28th? No. What I try to do with my books, or what I try to do when I interview somebody who was involved in an historical event, I want to know what it felt like. Right? Fuck the facts. Right. What I mean by that, I mean, obviously, I don't I don't want fake facts. I don't want alternative facts. But what my point is, is that I think... In other words, you know, when we were young, we had to memorize, like, you know, parts of the Constitution or something, right? You know, quoting shit verbatim is is what you're doing. You're not learning. You're memorizing, right? So what did it feel like to have a bunch of dudes in a room in Philadelphia in 1776 writing this? What did that fucking feel like? That's what I want to know, right? What did it feel like to be marching through the streets of Chicago when a big Chicago policeman, you know, beat you over the head with a billy club? Right. I don't really need to know whether it happened at 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. <laughs> you find what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, unless you're in a, the only I mean, unless you're trying to create a timeline to, you know, to make a case or unless right. you're an astrologer. I think for the only pe- as I'm listening, it's the only people for whom that really matters would be astrologers, like the difference between an right. hour yeah, here or and a, an grand, hour a grand jury. Investigation. Exactly. Those like, are the two cases where. Right. Yeah. That's my point. So in other words, to me, what makes history interesting is how did it fucking feel right like like i use a phrase 
whenever I'm around, like I spent, and I don't want to dig too deep on a particular thing, but I'll just throw out an example. I spent a weekend with Al Cooper, legendary Al Cooper, producer, keyboard player, whatever, okay? When I, when I get to do something like that, I call it getting close to the heat. Yeah. Right? Okay. When I get to hang out with a Black Panther, you know, like Elaine Brown, I'll let the Black Panther party for an afternoon. I'm getting close to the heat. Okay. Many of these people, I believe, unless I'm delusional, enjoy my company because I, I'm not nitpicking them. In other words, Al Cooper doesn't want to be, and I'm just using him as an example. Okay. Al Cooper doesn't want to be like, yo, Al. Uh, you know, the B-side to your third single, were you playing a clavinet or was that a Fender Bro? You know, like, in other words, most people don't want to get into the weeds. You know, there's some musicians that maybe like, you know what I mean? In right. other words, they, they, they want to they wanna talk with these broader brushstrokes and then on their own, they will eventually boil it down to something that they think is important. Do you follow what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they lived it. I mean, if you, especially if you've lived it, the difference between whether it was a Monday or a Tuesday is meaningless to you. What happened and how it felt right. is all that matters. You know, we're, we started this conversation off about the, the, the lost art of talking. You know, I was talking about, you know, phone calls are lost art. Well, you know what? There's also the lost art of listening, right? Yeah. Every, everybody in a conversation wants to just be me, 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 you know. I, w I wouldn't have lasted 10 minutes working on a Black Panthers book if I just showed up and just told them my philosophy. They don't, don't give a shit my philosophy yeah. of what the Black Power movement was about. No, I'm there to hear theirs. Well, in light of that, and considering the uprisings that are happening all over America this week in response to the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, uh, based upon your experience with the Panthers, do you have any insights to share? Well, you know, it, it recalls a lot of what was happening in 1967, 68, 69, 70. Um, I mean, many of the Panthers that I interviewed told me that as much as they admired Martin Luther King, as much as they respected the nonviolent uh, tactics of King, that in, you know, urban, northern urban cities like Chicago or Oakland, um, they needed to make things a little more intense. Um, hence, of course, the Panthers and carrying guns and things. I mean, they, however, didn't do that for long, uh, not the least of which it was dangerous, but they, but they did make their point with the police, and they eventually found some real change by running for city council and getting involved in government and things. But, you know, that was like a decade-long arc. But I think, I think the black community and I think even many white liberals are just sick of one policeman after another, you know, killing blacks with no uh, no punishment. Um, I think what the shame is is that this guy has been uh, I'm blanking on the cop's name, but Derek Chauvin. Not only was he fired, but I believe he's facing a murder charge. So I'm not entirely sure we needed to do all kinds of looting and that type of thing. But I do believe the upside of some of this violence uh, in the last couple of days is to hopefully drive you home to police departments across the country that they got to get rid of these rogue cops, rope them in immediately, if not sooner, you know, 
I think the problem is, is that, you know, that old adage, you know, it's all fun till somebody gets loses an eye. Well, you know, I think I think the police, you know, there's a code of blue. They protect each other. So they, they sort of just let the, the bullshit slide until one of these assholes actually kills somebody. And then unfortunately, even then, some of these guys don't get punished. So well, this guy, this guy had, had already had killed before. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, you know, it's it's a complicated issue. But, you know, the, the sad thing is, is that in many ways, you know, despite civil rights, despite having a black president, whatever, I mean, we're, we're really going backwards. And the last thing I'll say, because I don't want to keep rambling, is that, you know, Trump and his gang are pushing us backwards. You know, we're, we're more like about 1955 now than 2020. Um and that's pretty much all I have to say on that. We, we, I think we, we've tapped that that musical divination, and we're ready to move towards your question. Do you have a question ready? Um, <laughs> so I need to do this for the magic. Eight okay, eight. well, hold on a second. We're not quite. We're not quite there. I'm just. Uh, I'm. I'm reminding okay. the, you and the listeners that we're getting close to that. But before we do that, every day the Pop Oracle, the Radio Eight Ball app that we use for this show, generates a randomly chosen songs from over the from the close to two thousand songs that are in the app, and one of those is the song of the day. And today, uh, today's song of the day was a song called, or is a song called Autumn that was uh, performed by Gabriel Gordon, who's been on the show uh, recently as a guest in our season three. And he was performing the song Autumn on June 22nd, 2018. And I guess I've been, I, the only, for, I'll just say for me, the, the synchronicity around that is that he, when he was on the show last time, he was very focused on Christmas and New Year's and how, how things mm-hmm. were going to be then. So it's interesting to me that Autumn came up uh, as this one. And then it was, if you listen to the end of the song, his question was all about happiness, which is also what this question this week that we're talking about from Josh was about. Mm-hmm. So I thought right. that was pretty interesting. But what did, were there any, do you have any particular synchronicities? I guess it's also worth noting because he just, he posted it this morning. He posted, a, and I, I was trying to look for it. He posted a really beautiful and, you know, sad and, uh, I mean, he's a black guy and he's looking at the world and what's going on with the police violence and the protests and the, all of the stupidity around the conversation around it and the, la- you know, and maybe whatever. It's just I could feel his frustration. I w- and then I saw what the song of the day was. I was like, OK, well, this is a day to be hanging with Gabriel. So. Uh, so, yeah. What, what did you think about that is the answer? to the Well, I had, some th- I had some thoughts. I had some thoughts on the song. First of all, I thought that he was the perfect bridge between folk and soul. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean he's 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 you know it's funny how and you mentioned because he's black, it's so rare to see the black man with an acoustic guitar. I mean I'm I'm sure some of our listeners could say, well, you know, you there's Bill Withers and there's Ben Harper and, and you know, you, I'm sure you can make a, a list. But in general that's a little bit of a rarity. Hence, he is this great bridge between folk and soul. You know, he's. I loved the song was moody and evocative. I loved his voice. And I also loved how his guitar playing interacted with his vocal. Right? I mean, most, the best singer-songwriters, 
you know, that's what it's all about. You know, there's there's your there's your voice and there's your guitar and then the song. And the, and the mark of the great ones are is is that they're they're they're, they're working together. You know, when you see a young singer-songwriter, a really bad one, you're like, is there two people in that brain or one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, you know, he was a, he was one with himself, uh, and I really enjoyed the song. Yeah, he's a real channeler in the like the way he relates to music. He's very big. He I met him on our Joni Mitchell tribute episode. He's a oh, big wow. Joni Mitchell fan. I guess he is some like they've met and connected at some point, and she was impressed with him. And it makes sense. He's just he has that particular outside of the box fluidity with the way that he approaches music. And yeah, um, I I wonder what I wonder what autumn will bring. Well, I think and I think uh, what's funny I, I may be wrong, but I think the song is about a, someone named Autumn. Oh, okay. Right. More than. Yeah. Which I think is. But I think it's one of those things like I've written a song about the moon that was also about a girl that I would. So I think there's something there like he's he knows he's writing about a woman, but he's also writing about the season. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Well, uh, it's always good to be able to check in with Gabriel uh, and I will post the link to the full reading of that and uh, people can check out the full reading from that episode or actually check out the whole episode his friends were great and uh, he's always a great guy to hang out with and it even has a very uncomfortable moment where we get angry at each other for a second so if you're a fan of that it happens every couple years on the show so uh, that that I get into it with the guest but never as fun as it was with Gabriel because we get we got into it and dropped it so quick it's like the best thing in the world like it's like we were family immediately mm-hmm. anyway i only say that because it's almost like a trigger warning some people listen to bit like what what happened there mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh that's artists you know it's like pete townsend and abby hoffman i'm i wonder if they ever met oh, that's a good question for the pop oracle but uh what is your let's let's get let's get the the app out and let's get to your question do you have the okay. radio eight ball app at the ready pat I, I will in a moment here and i and i, I and i have a question okay Okay, here it comes. God, I, I I get I all of a sudden get nervous as soon as the app is open. Okay. Um, okay, here's here's my question, and this is referring very much to the last three months. Okay, what is your question for the Pop Oracle, Pat Thomas? Why are our dreams so intense? Hmm. Okay, and I just I'm shaking it. Shaking the eight ball. This reminds me of when I used to have, you know, the, was it called the magic eight ball? Yeah, no uh, connection whatsoever. No, no, no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and do I have, a, we have a song. Should I, should I announce? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It is by James Combs and it is called To Know You Is To Save You. Oh, God. That's so perfect, Pat. To know you is to save you. <laughs> you come on. 
are trouble like a storm up the street. Here come our trouble with impossible needs. Everything is hanging on your sleeve. Here come our trouble like a storm indiscreet. Here come our tantrum, what we fighting today. James Combs of the band Great Willow, who've been on the show recently as Great Willow and was on Radio 8 Ball in 2008 on April 11th, just a few days after your birthday there, uh, Pat. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we, so, he, so wait, let me got... just say really quickly, he was on uh, 11.50 a.m. in Seattle playing that song, To Know You Is To Save You, and it's one of my, I just, Wow. That was a great answer. What, what did you think about that as the answer to your question? I, I loved it. You know, it had uh, it had this sort of, uh, and I, I, I always hate people who compare people to Nick Drake, but it, it had that sort of mm-hmm. fragile, Drakean quality. Uh, I, I, I had never even really, it had always been in the back of my mind, but this was the first time that I realized that the song is jumping off of Here Come Old Flat Top. Oh wow! Here come yeah, old flat top, become grooving up slow. But I mean, yeah. they take it in all these other ways. 
it's a great riff on that little I don't know yeah. that meter. Um, but what did you think? But but your so your question was about the dreams and oh, so are you having intense dreams? I I am yeah I'm having weird, you know the last month or two I, I, I you know I, I it's not that I don't want to share them I just can't think of anything specific but they're just they're just intense you know just you know uh, kind of um, unsettling you know um, vivid stuff you know and again I. I I'm sorry I'm being so ambiguous. I wish I could say, well, last night I dropped this. Everyone is <laughs> going to project their own dream onto it anyway. No. <laughs> right. Exactly. Anyway. But the idea, no, but I think the idea that we're having intense dreams right now and the fact that you are particularly in that point, like we've all gone yeah. through that period in our life where our dreams were a little bit more intense. And I think we can all relate to yeah. that. And then we're going to project our own thing. If you if something comes back to you in the session and you need to, you need to like a, you know, yeah. a non-local hug. I'm I'm here for you, Pat. All right, uh, buddy. My Thank dad you. was a dream psychologist, and that's I grew oh, wow. up in the world of dreams. And if I have any real fame at all, it's because I was in, in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. I'm your guy to talk to talk to this about, Pat. Okay. Uh, Fair. So, yeah. In terms of the idea of to know you is to save you. Mm -hmm. how, did that relate in any way to the? I mean, even though you may not remember particularly what the dreams are, uh -huh. it, it was there. A, it, does that, the idea to yeah. know you is to save you, does that touch on the experience you're having? Yeah, well, you know, as you just said, you know, dreams are really only interesting to us. They're very personal. And, and that song was incredibly personal, right? It was intimate, right? And, it, and, and I felt like I was inside of his heart and inside of his head. Uh, I'll be honest, since I wasn't catching too many of the lyrics, but I was, you know, I, I mentioned that thing earlier about mood. Yeah. Or, or feeling. I'm talking about feeling, right? So sometimes when I'm listening to a songwriter like that, I may not be catching the lyrics, right? That's, that's the Tuesday, was it Tuesday or was it Wednesday part of it, yeah. right? But I'm capturing the feeling. Right. So he's he's feeling whatever he's feeling. And I'm feeling, you know, like I'm part of it, even though I'm not exactly sure what it is. You know what I mean? So he he, he reeled me in mm -hmm. uh, with emotionally, even if I was a little uh, uh, ignorant about, you know, what what the message of the song was. I like that, that you that you brought in the Nick Drake thing, because it's. You just have to have a voice like that in order to be able to do this thing. Like the song is both really urgent and driving and also incredibly soft and inviting. Right. You know? And that's you like I could not I could attempt that. I could try and do that, but I just do not have that in my voice to be Right, exactly. That, right. You either, like yeah. that sort of compassionate in the in the delivery that you could be, he's, this is kind of a screed. I mean, he, he actually, it was one of those things we went out afterwards and we were talking and I was going through kind of an emotional thing where there was a relationship that I was in that was kind of torturing me. And he was telling mm -hmm. me about this song. He was like, yeah, this is about this woman I was in a relationship with and it was torturing me. But then that ended and I thought that my life was going to be over. And then I met this amazing woman I had, the, and then everything went great and things have been great in my life since. And it's really interesting to look back on how intense mm -hmm. that was. 
And right. that's, and it was one of those things for me at that time and telling me that story and that it got encoded in that song that every time I listen to that song, I kind of mm-hmm. feel all the feelings of the relationship, but I also feel like this great gratitude for that conversation that was a little bit of a, I don't know, like a life raft a little bit like, oh, okay, there's another, sure. there's something on the other side um, right. of that. And it turned out to be true. I do want to throw a couple of lines out at you, though, from the song. Okay, I'd sure. never really, you know, it's. I feel the same way. Like, I kind of just let that song wash over me. I don't really, I, if you ask me what any lyrics in a Nick Drake song were, I'd have a hard time coming up with one, you know? Right, and right. I've listened to those right. songs a thousand a times. Yeah. Uh, but the the th- four lines that I was able to catch as I was following it now was, uh, there's a, uh, a verse where the lines are, I caught up a tree, the leaf of dismay, and mystery is not the game you play. And the idea of a dream, like, I don't know, that seemed like a dream image and like the intensity of a dream image. Like I'm caught up a tree and everything leaf that falls off is like a leaf of dismay, but mystery is not the game you play. And dreams are all about mystery. My dad wrote many books yeah. on dreams and his whole thing was that the, the dreams are like this, like they're our own personal greatest poet on the planet. Like all of our Mm -hmm. dreams are these amazing poems written by uh, us to ourselves. And if we take time to explore them, well, if you're, if you need to explore them therapeutically, you can, but if you choose to explore them just artistically, all these other wonderful aspects of them open up. And then, but, but the, the one line that really jumped out to me as to why we're having these intense dreams is the line we just watch silently and I mm-hmm. think that's it. It's this sense right. of wanting to participate, knowing that big things are happening, knowing that we are in a, a super intense time that in the future people will look back on and say, what happened in that year? What was That was a momentous year. And we all have to sort of sit and watch silently. And for, mm-hmm. our, for our subconscious, the part of our mind that that's what, again, this is going to my father's teachings, but... That's what dreams do. They, they're the cleanup mechanism. The things that we can't reconcile in our daily life, or the things that where we take in so much information that we just can't, the brain can't handle it. In dreams, they get sort of defragged and worked out, mm-hmm. in these fanciful poetic ways. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to really nerd out. Are you? A, are you a Lou Reed fan? I am. Okay. Are you familiar with his early mentor, Delmore Schwartz? No. Delmore Schwartz was his Syracuse University um, English teacher. Okay. So, in other words, when Lou, pre, you know, pre Velvet Underground, Delmore Schwartz's most famous book in the 30s was called In Dreams Begin Responsibilities. Oh my God. You're killing me. Yeah. Because my my dad's passed on, but the book he was working on when he died was called In Dreams We Kiss Ourselves Goodbye. Wow. So he had to have been referencing. Yeah. Because he would have been of that era. As you were saying that, I was like, oh, so your your guy is like what my what my dad was for Abby Hoffman. Wow. And wow. in dreams are our responsibilities. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Holy shit, man. Pat, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> cool. Wow. Cool. Oh, my God. Delmore Schwartz. We should just name this episode the Delmore Schwartz episode. Right. <laughs> wow. What else has he written? Is he? He's a dream? 
no, no, no. He's, 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 I mean, I wish I could describe his writing a little bit better because it's been a few years since I read, but he, you know, he, he was, he was one of the most popular writers of the 1930s. Uh, so by the time he's with Lou in the early sixties, he's, he's kind of washed up as a writer. Um, but he was a friend of uh, Saul Bellow. If you're familiar with Saul yeah. Bellow, Saul Bellow wrote a novel about Delmore called Humboldt's Gift. But huh. basically, you know, Delmore was this, you know, the, the the bright shining star novelist, short story writer of the 30s. And, you know, unfortunately, sort of peaked early. Um, and I and now I'm a little embarrassed because I, I would love to have. Remembered. So he was sort of Saul Bellow's Neil Cassidy? Well, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Well, it's not a fair definitely an influence. Yeah. A little a little bit of an influence on. So, yeah, I mean, that's why Bellow after Delmore. Delmore Schwartz dies like right around the time the Velvet Underground start, like about 66. So by like early 70s, Saul Bellow wrote, you know, it's all about Delmore Schwartz, but it's, disc- you know, like a lot of novels, it's basically nonfiction. Right. And that's called Humboldt's Gift. But um, th- what I would suggest you do is there's a biography of Delmore Schwartz by a guy named James Atlas. I would track a copy of that down. And then I would track down uh, his other books. And then in Dreams Begin Responsibilities is a collection of short stories. And I think his other collection of short stories is called The Ego is Always at the Wheel. Ooh, I love this. This guy writes like I like I think this is. See, what I think what I think the phrase dream begins responsibilities is like, you know, I had a dream to be an author. You know, you have a dream to be a singer songwriter. We're taking on a responsibility. Right. We're. In other words, if you want your dreams to happen, you got to own them. So that's what I always thought the phrase "in dreams begins responsibilities." No, I, I love that. Yeah, you know, like you, you know, you basically yeah. you shoot the arrow into the air with, the, with your intention, and then you have to go and get to where it lands, which is a long and arduous journey that is full of things that you have to do, and it's not as fun as just showing up and being a beetle, right? It also right. It also it also I think is goes for in other words when you have a band right you got four guys and one of them decides to quit the day before the tour right yep i would say hey dude in dreams begin responsibilities don't fuck don't fucking quit the tour right you follow what i mean yeah 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 so you know that's that's how i look at in dreams begin responsibilities you know well we're we're wending our way towards the end of this of this uh, yeah, we covered a lot of ground. We'll get to and we're going to get to my question in the in the bonus portion. But I just wanted to say okay. before we move to that, there's sure. another piece of context here because like you actually you have me at a disadvantage. You know my music a little bit, and little bit. I am just you know literally just in my crappy research. I I totally went to the writing. I didn't even follow the music. But then when you were right. saying you were a drummer, I did a little research here, and you were in a band called Mushroom. Can you tell? Yes, I, like, and it's yes. and it looks like you did. Either you curated, either as a writer, you curated your Wikipedia page excellently, or it looks like Mushroom has a like you did a ton of stuff. Can you tell? I don't. I'm I'm woefully ignorant of oh, okay. Mushroom's discography, right. but can you tell us? Just tell the listeners a little bit about that side of what you're doing as we as we head out. Yeah, sure. First of all, I'm I'm happy to say that, uh, sort of happy to say. Actually, I haven't. I didn't actually build my own wiki page i'm not sure who wrote it but whoever wrote it was more into my music side of my life so basically 
in the late 90s, I started a, a free-form, instrumental, sort of jazz rock, psychedelic rock collective called Mushroom. And I had uh, a guy named Graham Khanna, who'd been in, like, Camper Van Chadbourne. Um, I had uh, a guy named Al Palau, who was in a band called The Sneeches. Anyway, uh, Tim Plowman, who was in a band called Slovenly. So basically, through the years, there's been roughly 20 members of Mushroom. And we get on stage and we just improvise. But it's not squeaky squawk. In other words, it's not like... It's, it's kind of like groove stuff, you know, kind of like Miles Davis on the corner, a uh, little bit of Soft Machine, third... You know, it's 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 kind of somewhere. It's kind of the the mix between kraut rock, jazz rock, and funk rock. In my current lineup, since I moved to LA, is a little more of an all-star lineup. I've got David Emmergluck, who's in the Counting Crows. He's also in Monks of Doom. I got Victor Krumenakers and Camper Van Beethoven. Occasionally, DJ Bonebreak of X sits in. I've had Sid Straw on vocals a few times. And when I say vocals, we're not playing songs. She's scatting over the top of us. So we've got about literally 20 albums out uh, on about 15 different labels, some in Europe, some here, and um, that's Mushroom, and it's, and it's still an ongoing concern. I'm the drummer and band leader, and in recent years, I actually moved the drums all the way to the front of the stage, and the bass players and guitar players are behind me. Oh yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Is it is it is your drum set is your kit ornate? Do you does it create? It's a it's a it's an unfortunate word right now, but does it create a corona around oh. you so that you like? Do you have do you have? A, I'm asking. Do you have a, a gong? Something that oh, frames your no, head? No, no, no. Believe it or not, it's give, given the grandiosity of the music. I have like a little four piece jazz kit. Um, it, you, you just know, need a big red light behind your head, maybe. Something right, right. to like really yeah. highlight that you are yeah. driving. It's like you know, it's like Han Solo at the head. I, I love when a drummer puts himself in the front because they got so mm -hmm. much machinery. Yeah, it just looks like you know, all of a sudden the band becomes a spaceship. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if that's the case, but yeah, right, right. Yeah, there's a little bit of that sort of. Uh, you know, there's a touch of Sun Ra element to what we do, a little bit. <laughs> well, I okay. So I do have a question though. Yeah. So, okay. if you're playing a show, if I ever I'm in LA, and we're ever playing shows again, and Mushrooms playing a show, and say okay. there's like a there's like some political thing going on in the world that's important, uh -huh. and I jump on stage and start uh -huh. to talk about how about today's version of John Sinclair. Right. You're gonna be you're gonna be struck with a, a conundrum. Do you do do you and your band kick me off the stage as Pete Townsend did and go on to create uh -huh. the great rock of the 1970s, or uh -huh. do you incorporate my rantings into your show and make life house a reality? Well, I'll say this because it's happened because we are mostly instrumental. 99% of the time we don't have a vocalist on stage. I've had people jump up out of the audience and read poetry or just rants and I never stop them because you know part of what we're doing is sort of instant composition and performance art 
So, so yes, if you happen to just even if even if I didn't recognize you, if just not yet, even better. No, it, it not if you know it's me. I mean, I'm just saying some wild guy with a, a wearing an American flag on his jacket. I'm answering this question honestly because it's already happened, which is I've had nut jobs just jump on stage and I don't kick them off. Uh, I, I mean, I might kick them off if they were up there for more than a half an hour, but yeah. you know, I'm not. I don't. I don't initially filter. So there you go. Yeah. Well, do, and do you feel like in some way you learned that lesson? Like, if, I, I learn it from P. Well, there's. I, I just like we all have encoded. I feel like we've all encoded Woodstock so much, and we've all, and particularly you and I, have, en- have encoded the Who so much, and many, many, many. Well, you know, I'll, I'll say this: people. I was in a band in the '80s called Absolute Grey that did, you know, traditional songs, and we had some nut job jump on stage in New Haven, and I was pleased when the club escorted them off. So if I'm if I'm playing actual songs with verses and choruses, no, I don't want someone to join up. Uh, you know, unless it happened to be like Bill Ayers of the Weather Underground, and then I'd be like, "Well, Bill, I'm flattered that you've decided to crash my event." I believe. I mean, I'm a political guy, and I love Abby Hoffman. And for years, I felt like Pete Townsend was a hundred percent in the right. Right. Sure. Right. Like the part because yeah. I believe in rock and roll more than I believe in anything else because I just feel like I can have an effect there. Like I have yeah. opinions about politics, but I'm not in politics. I have no. I have one right. vote in a blue state sure. that I get to maybe exercise a couple times every four years. Right. But in in you know in art that you can have more of an effect. So I always felt like don't interrupt my show. God damn it, you know. But as I've gotten older, I've realized. You know, actually, I think it, you know. Actually, to be to be honest, and I I don't know. It sounds like the, that interaction that you had around that uh, around the the confrontation. Uh, on Facebook was unpleasant for you, but I have to say that I really I, I'm realizing now that it was that conversation, and maybe what you were saying there to confront the people who were saying just shut up and you know there's no place for politics and rock and roll that made me really rethink. Oh yeah, Townsend was kind of a, he might have I think he's kind of the jerk in that, which I feel like that's that's basically growing up. The more you realize, oh that person I thought was perfect. Hmm. Uh-huh. That one time, that they were they were wrong. Whether they're like your favorite sports team or the United States of America or you know your hero John Lennon, and you find out something, you're like, oh, yeah, great well, guy, that's... also shit bag, you know, like me, like you, like <laughs> right. every like, right, you know, sure. and we all and if I was famous and I was making the mistakes I made in my twenties, yeah, you know, that's right, that's right. Um, you know, Townsend had to do it on acid in front of us at the biggest concert of all time. Uh-huh. That's, I don't know. That's really intense. Like, yeah. that's your Woodstock experience. You kicked Abby Hoffman off the stage. Like, right. That's a. That's, that's unique. Yeah, sure. Nobody else did that. Like, yeah. <laughs> don't worry about burning your guitar, or smashing your guitar. That was right. the next level. You know, and, and if it's if you're really if you were really tripping, then it was totally honest. Anyway, of course that was the conversation I wanted to bring it back to. Pat, we're gonna move back behind the paywall if you'll if you'll join me. It'll be a it'll be a quick and painless experience, I promise. Okay, buddy.
Thank you for giving your attention and intention to this episode of Radio 8 Ball Season 3, The Happening with our guest, Pat Thomas. Please remember to subscribe to Radio 8 Ball in your podcast app. And if you like the show, please help other people find us by rating and reviewing Radio 8 Ball positively. If you tell your synchronicity story, I'll read it on the show. Of course, we encourage you to download the Radio 8 Ball app from the iTunes App Store. And finally... I do hope you'll join our Patreon campaign and follow us backstage for my pop oracle reading where I asked, What would Abby Hoffman say about election 2020? The Patreon link is in the show notes. We're going to go out with a song that I recorded with my band, Mr. Jones, in the previous during the L.A. Uprisings of late April and early May of 1992. It was released on our record, Mr. Jones and the Fascists in Search of the Hundredth Monkey. And the song is called Shout. And with that, I'm out. Until next time, I'm your host, Andras Jones, wishing you lots of spine-tingling synchronicities, connections with the natural world, and all the inspiration you can handle. One, two, three...
the 